Please be seated. I invite you to the 13th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews 13. Inside the city walls of Jerusalem, several hundred thousand Jews are celebrating Passover. Inside the city, imagine it, some 30,000 lambs are slaughtered at the temple within two hours. And after the ritual preparations, those lambs are taken to various homes throughout Jerusalem. And there they are roasted. And there they are eaten together in homes as Israel commemorates God's deliverance of the nation from Egyptian slavery centuries earlier. The city is packed with pilgrims who are here to worship together. Meanwhile, a short distance outside the city walls, another altar of sorts is in use. An altar on which the blood of another sacrificial lamb is sacrificed. On a barren, wind-swept hill with the ghoulish name of Golgotha, the skull, hangs the body of Jesus of Nazareth on a rugged cross. Outside the joyous city where extended families and groups of friends eat together, a few Roman soldiers and onlookers watch Jesus die in shame, despised, rejected, abandoned, mutilated. In time, the followers of Jesus come to understand that He died to suffer the wrath of God in their place. That He died as the ultimate sacrifice to rescue them from the penalty and even the power of sin. Yet in time, some Hebrew followers of Jesus turn longing eyes back toward the security and the familiarity of the city of Jerusalem and the old covenant worship that was centered there at the temple of this holy city. It was the edification of such followers of Jesus that the book of Hebrews was written to address. And the author's message could be summarized in various ways, but essentially he's saying you cannot have it both ways. You must either stand outside the city with Jesus, or you must return to the city, to the old covenant rituals which Jesus' death fulfilled and superseded. Will you identify with the new covenant through Christ crucified or with the old covenant, which was simply preparatory? Will you grasp the shadow and avoid the substance? Christ. Having brilliantly defended that thesis, the author of Hebrews brings the discussion to close here in chapter 13. As he does, he offers a brief word that ably prepares our hearts as we approach the Lord's table together today. The Lord's Supper is indeed, as we gather around this table, it is a stark reminder that we worship a crucified and despised Savior. That our very identity is wrapped up with a rejected Messiah who was crucified in shame. As we approach this meal designed to help us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to commune with the risen Christ and with one another, let us rejoice to remember, first of all, this truth from Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 10. We hear that Jesus bore the reproach of our sin by dying on a cross to secure our purification. 
He bore the reproach of our sin by dying on a cross to secure our purification. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, honestly, for Gentile readers situated where we are, that's probably a little bit confusing as we first go through that section. But for these original readers, they know immediately what he is talking about. He's really not looking at and identifying Jesus' death with the Passover celebration, which can be very well done. But really, he's looking here, the author is looking here at the Day of Atonement. And we notice here a reference in verse 10 to an altar some alternative altar. Christians possess a place of sacrifice and all that sacrifice accomplished. Where we find the word altar and sacrifice, they're interchangeable. It is a picture of all that takes place at the altar, the ritual sacrifice. But we have those who serve the tent who in some way do not participate in this new altar. Who are those who serve the tent? Well, first of all, what is the tent? We have here a reference to the tent of meeting, which God commissioned Moses to construct when Israel was journeying to the promised land after the deliverance from Egypt. Those who served that tent were whom? This is the Levitical priests. Many of the sacrifices that God prescribed included the provision for the priests to eat from those sacrifices. But there were other sacrifices where they were not permitted to eat. Now, there's a lot going on here in the author's mind. In fact, I think verses 10 through 14, as we will look at them, could be fleshed out in chapter after chapter. But he's just grasping at connections and ideas. There's an altar from which these individuals cannot eat. In fact, in their ritual service of the tent of the meeting, there were some sacrifices from which no priest could eat. This was the case on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, a bull was slaughtered on the altar for the sins of the priest, the high priest. A goat was slaughtered for the sins of the people. All of this detailed in Leviticus chapter 16. Now this, as I say, is not a photograph, remember, but uh, is, is missing a few things, in fact. We don't find the laver there, that bull that was between the altar and the tabernacle in this uh, model. But we see there the altar. On this altar, there is slaughtered a bull, there is slaughtered a goat on the Day of Atonement. And then the priest would take blood from those sacrifices, would go into the tent behind the veil that covered the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, and would place the blood of these sacrifices on the mercy seat that is on the lid of this Ark of the Covenant. Again, just a guess at what it might look like, what it might have looked like. So looking at it from above, the high priest would enter on this Day of Atonement through the entrance, offer the sacrifices there on the altar of burnt offering. There would be ritual washing and a ritual procession through the holy place. And then behind the curtain, this one time a year, to place this blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. 
a picture of the throne of God where His holy presence would be behind that veil. Placing the blood there to atone for His own sin and to atone for the sins of the people. Now when these sacrifices were offered, many sacrifices, again, would be, priests would be permitted to eat a portion of the sacrifice. But when these sacrifices were offered on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take and with help take these sacrifices outside the tabernacle area and they would be consumed as a holocaust, completely burned. Nothing was to be eaten. So the point is that the Day of Atonement, in this sense, prefigures the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, who, like the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, was taken outside the camp, in this case, outside the city of Jerusalem. So the author's logic here is not altogether clear. He has found many evidences, prefigurings of Jesus in the ritual service of the tabernacle, But here there is a connection particularly to these sacrifices on the Day of Atonement which were not to be eaten by the high priest but which were to be taken outside the camp. He latches on to that theme. And so he says in verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. That's why we're here today. That's why we gather around this table. Think of it. Outside the gate, that is the city walls of Jerusalem, are viewed here in parallel to the boundary fence around the tent of meeting. Jesus suffers outside the gate on Golgotha in order to sanctify the people. The word sanctify can be used different ways in the New Testament. But in the book of Hebrews, it has the idea of rendering sinners acceptable to God by removing their moral defilement and guilt, and thus to set them apart as holy unto the Lord. Acceptable to God, purification from sin, separation from the world unto God. This is the idea of sanctification. Now the means of this purification is what? How does God accomplish this purification in our lives? We understand it well but it is through His own blood. That is through the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God that this purification is accomplished. So again, while we may not follow all of the logic here, the idea is clear that the means of purification is Christ's blood, and this purification takes place outside of Jerusalem, in isolation, in separation, in rejection. As Hebrews 9 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for His people. Now think of this. If Jesus died to sanctify His people, and if the path of our redemption led Jesus outside the city, there is only one logical conclusion. What is it? Verses 13 and following, it is this. We must bear the reproach of Christ and live pure lives in pursuit of His kingdom. We must bear the reproach of Christ and live pure lives in pursuit of His kingdom. Verse 13. Therefore, you see the connection, therefore, based on this connection that has been discussed, 
Let us go to him where? Outside the camp. And do what? Bear the reproach that he endured. For the recipients of this epistle, what did that mean? Do not return to the old covenant, which was only a shadow of the salvation God all along was laboring to provide in Jesus. Don't grab the shadow and miss the substance. In fact, by grabbing the shadow, you will miss the substance. Your salvation hinges on identifying with the rejected Christ and making a clean break from what is now an obsolete covenant. So, as F.F. Bruce puts it, with respect to Judaism, what was formerly sacred was now unhallowed because Jesus had been expelled from it. And what was formerly unhallowed was now sacred because Jesus was there. Holy ground was no longer the temple. Think of it. All that God had done to mark this place out as holy and sacred, no longer. Now, holy ground is wherever the Spirit of Jesus is. Now, this applies to us quite differently. I I don't think in the temptations that you faced this week that you were probably really fighting hard to not go back to the Old Covenant. This misses us entirely. This interest, this desire has nothing to do with our lives. Our salvation, however, in parallel, hinges on embracing the reproach of a crucified Savior. It does involve turning our backs on the city of man. Embracing the reproach of a crucified Savior, turning our backs on works-based religious respectability, as well as on any worldly philosophy at odds with the purifying, self-sacrificial orientation of the cross. There are religions out there, we know of them, don't we? We see their great and massive structures, and we see the wealth of these religions. They are religions where people can find comfort, can find even popularity and connection. But those who worship Christ worship a shamed, rejected Savior in spirit and in truth. Are you a forgiven sinner? Have you genuinely trusted in the death of Jesus for your salvation from God's wrath? Do you know this to be the case? If you do, there will be something that is true about you. I don't think this is a possibility, a potential. I think that it is the truth. If you are born again, you have turned your back on all that is incongruous with the cross, all that is not in sync with the death of Christ, whether in deed, thought, attitude, or philosophy, you have turned your back on it. Now you say, but won't we have struggles with sin in these areas? Certainly we will until the day that we meet Christ. We will struggle with sin. Every one of us comes to this table having struggled in deed and thought and philosophy and goal with the temptations of this world. We understand the allure of these things, but comfortable with sin, at ease with the spirit of this age, never again. 
Not if we've come to true faith in Christ. We leave these things behind us. We know we've walked outside the city of man. And we've identified with the isolated, shamed, rejected Christ. We gather around this table this morning in part to say that our loyalty forever belongs to this Christ, to the One who was sacrificed for us. We identify with Him. To say it another way, and as it broadens out from the Old Covenant, New Covenant issue before them, to us, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Their fellow Jews boasted the earthly attractiveness of a religion with a magnificent worship center. Visible priests, a tangible sacrificial system, and ancestral traditions. They had all of this. But the city of man, the unified society of sinful fallen man, remember it? Pharisees, Sadducees linking together. Pharisees, Sadducees cooperating with the Roman government. This city of man, united society, rejects the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ who is worshipped in spirit and truth alone. And this world with its illusory quest for pleasure and power and self-generated peace is simply not our home. Like Abraham of old, we look forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. Chapter 11, verse 10. Our Savior despised the shame of the cross. He endured its suffering for what? For the joy of being seated in triumph at the right hand of the throne of God. Chapter 12 and verse 2. To identify with Christ outside the walls of man's kingdom is to say that our affections are linked to the glories of a greater city to come where Christ will reign over the whole earth and over eternity. That's where our hope is. Think of Mary Magdalene. Where was her affection centered? Where were her thoughts when she turned from Jesus' lifeless body and she walked away that night to try to find some sleep with all that had happened, where is her mind? I think in Jerusalem, there's great celebration there. These 30,000 lambs roasted within a few hours of one another. The smell of the city is everywhere. And the lights of the city with families and friends gathering for these large communal meals throughout the entire city. There is so much going on there, but where is Mary's mind? Her mind is outside the city on a grave that she has marked. As she struggles to sleep that night, that is where her mind is. That is where her affections lie. And as she gets up the next day, early the next morning, and the risen Christ appears to her, where is her mind? Where are her thoughts? To which city does she identify? She runs back into Jerusalem and proclaims the truth that Christ is risen. This is not cleverly devised tales. Just taking this one woman, this is an illustration of someone whose affections have been tied to a new city.
to a Savior who is coming again. As Philip Hughes puts it, in joining the crucified Christ outside the gate, we are not separating ourselves from reality, but separating ourselves to that reality, which alone is ultimate and eternal. You know what's not reality is thinking that you will gain all pleasure in this life and taking some shot at the next one, not really sure what's there, and not living in its light. That's delusional. But for us, by faith, we see the city that is to come, and we have a mighty struggle as far as it goes to live in light of that city by faith. But we know it's there. We know it's coming. That's where our affections are, and we have turned our back on this earthly city that surrounds us where Christ is not adored, where His truth and His sacrifice are not appreciated, where life is not lived in light of who Christ is or His coming. There is coming a day when Jesus will return according to chapter 12 and He will shake this earth and all will see the truth that they have rejected. We find no home in the world system that crucified Jesus and that is waiting His pending judgment. This is not our place. We serve rather the kingdom of Jesus which will come in all fullness to this earth in the future. And now we identify with Him outside the city of man. And how do citizens of the eternal city live? Of course, the entire New Testament is written to bring up that idea. But we have two simple concepts shared here by the author in verse 15. It is with a new kind of sacrifice. Through Him, verse 15, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Sacrifices of praise that flow from our hearts and spill out of our mouths in spiritual songs and verbal testimonies to the love and splendor of God. And verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We're a new priesthood. We have a new sacrifice. Now it is to do good, to share with others in need. That is, deeds of righteousness, deeds of selfless, loving sacrifice that reflect the character of our righteous Savior who has given His life in behalf of sinners. We live tied to who Christ is and what He's done. In other words, a life orientation that actively reflects the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in every detail of our lives. A gospel-centered life, a life tied to the crucified Christ outside the city as it pertains to the way that we use money, to the way that we set goals, to the pleasures that we seek at work and play, in family life, in community life, in worship, in devotion. Everything is tied to the crucified Christ who's set outside man's city. We live that way. Is it clear that you live that way? Is it clear to those who live around you, those who are lost, that see your life, that this individual's life is tied to something that is different than the moorings of this world? Is it clear? Is it obvious in every aspect of our lives? There is coming a future day, let us remember. The new Jerusalem will descend from heaven and it will settle upon a renewed earth. 
And from that city, Jesus will reign over the nations in such splendor. The book of Revelation tells us that there will be no need for sun or moon. It tells us that the walls will be high, but the gates will never shut. The walls are still there, not defensive any longer, but they're there to say, here is the place of the sun. Here is where he reigns. And in that day, the author of Revelation says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is it saying? In other words, there will be a day when holy ground is once again inside the city. But it'll be the day when Christ reigns over all. But now, today, where we stand, we have no part in that city to come if this city is our home. We stand not in the city of man, but outside that city, identifying with Christ. Yet we're not outside looking in, not giving place to the temptations that we find there. We're not outside looking in. We are on the outside looking forward. We are on the outside looking upward to the eternal city. And so we come to this table as sinners. We don't come here to declare how righteous we are in our own standing and strength, but do you come as a sinner who willingly identifies with the crucified Christ outside the city of man? Examine your heart. What folly and what danger there is to play in both cities because we ultimately can't. Are we a hypocrite here? Is our home really this world? Examine your heart. Here at this table, we identify with and commune with the rejected Savior. And here we proclaim together that He is King of kings, that He is Lord of lords, indeed that He is my Lord and Savior. He's coming again in power and great glory. Remember how we eat and drink. We proclaim the Lord's death until when? Till He comes. And He will. So the lure of this world is great upon us. But it is here as a community of Christ, as believers gathered here, that we say together, this world is not my home. And it is here. Isn't it strange? As a new kingdom of priests, we do what the Levitical priests could not do on the Day of Atonement. We eat the sacrifice. We do here, strangely enough, what they could never do on any sacrifice. We drink the blood. John 6 and verse 55. Speaking figuratively, it is a way of saying that we commune with Christ. We have an altar they can't eat from, but we can. We commune with Christ even in the ultimate atonement. We eat of Him and we drink of Him. We commune with Him in our soul. And this is a sacrifice this world doesn't understand. In fact, if you come here separated from Christ, you do not have confidence that you have been redeemed from your sin and born again. There is no way that you can participate in this meal. In fact, don't do so. Just simply, reverently pass the elements. 
because you have no participation yet in Christ, and we pray that you will someday. But if you will, you must turn your back on the city of this world to embrace this rejected Savior whose death has paid the penalty of sin and whose resurrection life can become ours through His mercy. We must turn from our sin. We must turn from this world to embrace this mercy that is in Christ. We pray that you come to that place even today, but do not participate in this meal unless you know in your spirit that you have been born anew by Christ. For those of us who know Him as Savior, we need to examine our hearts. We don't come sinless, but we come examining our hearts, eating with confidence in the loving and saving grace of Jesus Christ. In that spirit, I invite you to this meal. May we commemorate the Lord's death until He comes as He has given us guidance. And let's bow together in prayer. Let's stand as an assembly and come to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we bow before You with thanksgiving. We give thanks over these elements. As we give that thanks, we also are looking forward and praising You in the name of Christ for the sacrifice of redemption that He has accomplished for us by His mercy. We gather here as an assembly to say together that we identify with the rejected Christ. That we have come out of the city of man and we identify with Him in separation and isolation in some sense from this world, in rejection. We are saying by gathering here today that He lives, that He is coming again, and that our hope is centered on the sacrifice that was made to purify us, to sanctify us, that we may stand in your presence, united with the righteous and perfect and risen, conquering Christ. We receive this bread, remembering the body that was crushed for our redemption. We receive this cup, remembering the blood that was shed for us. Meet with us here, and by your Spirit, may we commune with one another as a body and commune with the Lord Jesus Christ as we eat and drink at this table. In his name we pray. Amen.